This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained, and um, times are bad when you have to look to Matt Splained for a dash of hope and optimism. And on this week's dose of future-proofing, Matt Armitage is here to tell us about nuclear batteries, touchy-feely cameras, and some strange goings-on in the murky world of espionage. Hey, Richard, I'm going to start this episode with a a very kind of unusual tactic. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to be a spy? Yeah, of course. Who at which teenage boy hasn't, I think? And how far did you kind of uh, take that fantasy in your own mind? I remember uh, back in around 1998, MI5 were actually doing a recruitment drive where they would send out um, brochures for people that were interested in joining their um, organization. Oh, I remember that. That was just about the time that uh, I came to Malaysia. But honestly, I wasn't recruited. Um Obviously, uh, you know, I, I admit I've had the, the same kind of fantasies. And when I'm not reading science fiction, I'm reading detective fiction. And I've just finished uh, finished watching or rather watching again The Wire. I've just oh, I gone love through that. All five, yeah, I've just gone through all five seasons of that. So it turns out that now is actually a really good time to be a spy. Uh, security agencies around the world have been facing the problem of having to compete with both Silicon Valley and, of course, the dark web for talent in today's world of uh, high-tech espionage. According to a report in the MIT Technology Review, the CIA has come up with a novel new way to attract and retain technology-based talent. And it's actually a really simple method. They're going to allow them to share in the proceeds of any patents that they help to found if and when those patents get uh, get sold, rather. Shouldn't spies or technicians be motivated by stuff like public service uh, rather than profit? Well, I guess spy agencies have moved on from the idea of, you know, exploding cigars and poison-tipped umbrellas, which is, you know, one of the popular perceptions that we had of them, certainly when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of our ideas of what spies really are is co- uh, coloured by movies like, of course, the Bond franchise and possibly even Johnny English. So as we move into a much more sophisticated and high-tech world where security services are dealing with infrastructural and political hacking activity, artificial intelligence and, and bioterrorism, then you really do need some of the world's best you know, information technology talent to help build both your offensive and your defensive capabilities. And that means competing with startups that can offer, you know, really lucrative incentives like stock options. Because if you're going to go and write an algorithm for somebody, you might as well write it for some big tech company that's going to pay you millions of dollars rather than doing it for some government agency that puts you on a civil service pay scale. Um, Is this the first time an agency like the CIA has attempted a commercial initiative like this? Well, it's not as unusual as you might think. So in many countries, military intelligence services have commercial arms. They run their own companies and they generate profit. You tend to see that more in undemocratic countries than democratic ones. But even for the CIA, this isn't an entirely new idea. 
the agency has its own venture capital firm called InQtel. And technologies the CIA was an early investor in include Keyhole, which is one of the underlying technologies that we use on a daily basis through services like Google Maps and Google Earth. So agencies like the CIA have always engaged with technology companies to develop and bring innovation into the surveillance sector. Where this story is a little bit different is that it's inward-looking rather than outward-looking. It's actually about creating methods to reward its own staff for ingenuity and their participation in the patent-generating uh, projects. Is there a particular focus of the patent on the technology uh, that they're looking to reward or, or develop for? Why? Are you thinking of uh, applying? Because, you know, I don't think announcing it on national radio is you know, the for best friend, way to go. Know. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I... I don't think it's specific in that sense, but I think they do have priorities. You know, the way this is set up is to allow staff to receive up to 15% of the revenue from patients to a maximum of, I think, 150,000 US dollars per year. So as I said, uh, artificial intelligence, drone related technologies, and of course, data management and analytics. According to the piece in the technology review, one of the big issues that agencies like the CIA face is how to process all of the data they collect. You know, we have this idea of the NSA having deep listening stations and they're flagging all kinds of conversations for keywords. You know, they're probably listening to us now. In reality, when you think back to shows that we've done recently around artificial intelligence and how advanced those systems are or mostly aren't, context is something that's lacking from a lot of the algorithms that are currently being developed or currently in use. So when you think how difficult it is for social media companies to manage the flow of data, for them to flag posts that uh, contravene their community standards or they deem to be dangerous in some way. Imagine how that complexity is multiplied when you transfer that across to an intelligence agency, because you're now operating in an area where context is absolutely everything. You know, you can forgive a system when it makes a mistake between a threat and a joke on social media, but it's a lot less forgivable when somebody might call up a drone strike on the basis of the power of those words. Um, should we stick with algorithms? Uh, I think you've uncovered a, a rather interesting uh, touch technology. Well, I think that statement could uh, very easily be misconstrued. Um, but no, this is one of those stories that I really love and I find uplifting and everyone else finds a bit creepy and scary. So let's just agree that it's amazing, uh, and we'll leave the kind of collective value judgment there. Deal. It also plays into that area of contacts, uh, context rather that we were just talking about with the CIA. Researchers at Rutgers University in New Jersey have come up with an AI-based system that can predict how something will feel just by analysing pictures of it. Now, touch, of course, is an incredibly important sense to us. It's one of the primary ways that babies learn. Not that, of course, any of our senses aren't important, but we struggle to know exactly what something will feel like unless we actually have that experience of touching it. Obviously, our eyes and our memories give us some cues, 
But anyone who takes, you know, more than a quick glimpse at me will know pretty much straight away that touching me is going to be like cuddling a cactus. <laughs> but, but this feels like one of those things that scientists are just are doing just because they can. Or, or is there actually some science of necessity behind it? Well, on the one hand, it does push the boundaries of machine learning and it adds that potentially new skill set. But I think it was done with specific purpose in mind. You know, we're going to be trusting AI to manage a lot of the critical components and control levers of our world. In fact, we're already doing that. So we want those systems to possess as many of the skills we already have and hopefully to develop some more. Mm. You know, we've talked in the past about the development of AI systems that have the ability to smell or to taste. Applications for that could be anything from food hygiene to protection against bioweapons. So systems that can analyze or predict exactly what a surface is could be a real benefit to us. A new scientist, uh, which is where I got this story from, gives the example of black ice. Now, obviously, black ice is something that's largely invisible to us. It's even more invisible to us in Malaysia because it doesn't exist. But uh, sensors and cameras on cars, uh, whether or not those vehicles are autonomous, if they have this kind of predictive ability to detect differences in the surfaces of a road or other materials, that's going to be very useful to us. You know, anyone in Malaysia who's driven into a pothole on a dark road because they haven't been able to see it will probably be begging for a system like this, even more so if you're on two wheels rather than on four. Just out of interest, what makes you think that some people might find this uh, creepy? Well, first of all, I think it's making that leap. You know, as I said, we generally know from experience what something is likely to feel like. Uh, That's why we get a shock when we touch a, a reptile and find that their skin is very dry because our eyes and our brains are telling us that, you know, it looks really slimy and moist. So whenever machines uh, adopt characteristics that we feel are too overtly human, we get these, you know, we, we start to feel threatened, especially when we find out that the machine is learning in a very different way to us. It's learning from a data set. It's learning from photos, not from the experience of experimenting and recognizing what something feels like. And I think we also feel threatened by some of the potential as well. If we go back to the CIA example, imagine a technology like this being deployed alongside things like lie detectors. Then you have a system that's looking for tiny gestures of stress because there are already uh, facial recognition systems that can analyze micro expressions. So this could be used as an extension of that kind of technology. But also, I think it challenges one of those truisms that, again, we've learned from science fiction, which is that machines don't feel. So this would be a machine or a system that has not only learned to recognize what things feel like, it can actually do it from a distance and from a photograph, which, again, for me, it's great because it's an early warning system that would tell people not to approach me or to do it at their own risk. When we come back, you're listening to Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9. Blues, folk, metal. BFM 89.9.
BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Rich Bradbury. I'm in the, the virtual studio with uh, Matt Armitage. Um, before the break, Matt, we were talking about giving machines uh, human powers. Now you want to talk about power itself. Yeah, now, don't worry, I'm not getting all political or metaphysical here. I actually want to talk about batteries. Uh, a couple of interesting stories here. I always have to preface that and say you don't often get interesting stories about batteries. <laughs> uh, one from The Guardian and one from The New Scientist. Now, our old friend Elon Musk was doing the rounds a couple of weeks ago talking about better battery technologies. And I'm not sure how many people remember, but when Musk first started manufacturing the Tesla cars, the idea or the perception that I got was that they would actually be a marketing tool or a leader for his much larger at-home or in-community battery packs that would allow us to make better use of renewable energy by allowing us to store more of it closer to the points where it's generated. Because currently electricity can travel dozens or hundreds of kilometres along networks of overhead cables just to power up your TV or listen to this show. So local battery storage brings us closer to the idea of these distributed grids that make communities more energy secure and allow those resources to be shared and hopefully at a much lower cost to the end user. So that division of Tesla is called Powerwall. And for me, that was the real innovation behind what Tesla was doing. Of course, now the story about Tesla is cars and SUVs, and of course, soon to come, the trucks. And that Powerwall story uh, just seems to have gotten a little lost along the way. I understand why, you know, telling people about big square battery units that can power homes, it's not that exciting. I mean, I had to tell everyone else these were exciting stories about batteries yeah. because they're not. Uh, it, you know, especially when you have things like Tesla or, or Musk's Hyperloop systems, his neural lace technology, and of course, his rocket missions to Mars. But in terms of change in society, I think these battery packs have more potential than all of those other innovations combined. So I was really happy when he started doing the rounds a couple of weeks ago to talk about breakthroughs in the company's battery technologies. As I said, this isn't necessarily something new. He's been coming out periodically to say that major breakthroughs are in the works and these advances often seem to be delayed. So it's possible that he was just having a slow news day because there are only so many times you can change the hieroglyphics in your child's name or stage a press conference with some pigs. But I'm really hoping that he's on the money with this one. According to the announcement, we're still about three years away from this technology. And it isn't breaking new ground in terms of exponential increases in battery capacity. But Musk was touting the potential to halve the cost of the battery packs themselves. Because it's the price of the batteries that make most electric cars such, as, uh, such an expensive option right now. Well, exactly. Um, as I said, I'm not so interested in the car part, but part of Tesla's plans involve eliminating the use of cobalt in its batteries. So cobalt is currently the most expensive component. At the same time, a new mass production line at Tesla's Gigafactory should increase economies of scale. And they're going to be employing uh, more effective recycling processes, and that will allow them to reuse most of the battery packs that they actually produce. So according to the most recent figures, Tesla's battery packs cost around $156 per kilowatt hour 
industry experts estimate that traditional combustion engines and electric cars should reach price parity when battery packs cost around $100 per kilowatt hour. So if Tesla is able to reduce that to the $70 to $80 range, they could even potentially have a price advantage against petrol and diesel burning cars. More importantly, though, for for me, that means those battery packs become a much more affordable option for home power storage as well. But um, that doesn't really change the fact that we really need to get away from the idea of lithium-ion battery packs, uh, where most of the efficiency gains have already been made. Which brings us to our second story about batteries, our second exciting story about batteries, which is actually all about going nuclear. You see, you could have led with that one. That would have been far more exciting. Yeah, I know. I've got to build up or, you know, there's there's no sense of tension in the show. People will just skip straight to the end. So... Earlier this year, I got my wife one of those shout-out videos from a former astronaut as a birthday present, and the astronaut, Terry Verts commented to one of my wife's questions that what we really need in order to make space colonisation possible is nuclear energy. So it's not that there isn't enough power to be had from solar energy, it's that we don't have the technology to harness it, and as in the Tesla story, to store it. But we have the ability and potential already to reach planets like Mars with unhumaned and hopefully soon humaned missions. So our only real decent power generation source to meet those needs is from nuclear energy, which of course is seen as being a little bit on the dangerous side. Uh, The Voyager probes, which are currently exploring space outside our solar system, set off in 1977, powered by a weak nuclear power source. And that 1970s power tech really is throwing shade on the electric cars and the smart devices that we use today. Because those spacecraft have done millions of kilometres and and over 40 years on, on just a single charge. Yeah, so this may be the battery technology breakthrough that people have been asking for. Long-lasting, reliable, and above all, safe nuclear batteries. We talk about nuclear energy, um, but it doesn't actually all come in the same flavour. So when we talk about nuclear power plants, generally we're talking about nuclear fusion, but power sources like the ones that the Voyager probes use harness the decay of natural radiation. So while we can't determine exactly when that natural radiation source will fire out some particles, we do know what its half-life is, so we can predict it with a certain amount of certainty. In the Voyager 2 probe, the energy source is plutonium-238. Now, that has a half-life of 87.7 years. Uh, In case you hadn't guessed, I got the details from an article in The New Scientist. I'm not relying on my expert knowledge of uh, radioactive isotopes and isomers. Uh, I couldn't really explain to you what an isomer actually was if we met on a socially distant street. Um, But that half-life guarantees a reliable enough stream of alpha particles to provide the power to the engines that uh, drive the craft. I think part of the problem is um, people still panic when they hear words like plutonium. 
Well, yes. So, you know, I mentioned the alpha particles emitted by the uh, power source on the Voyager probe. So when we talk about radiation, we usually mean gamma radiation, you know, the stuff that turned Banner into the Hulk and Peter into Spidey. But beta, radi uh, beta radiation is not as harmful as gamma radiation. And alpha radiation is even less harmful. It doesn't penetrate the skin, although it would do you a lot of damage if you ingested it. As the new scientist points out, heart pacemakers in the 1970s often contained a very weak alpha radiation source. And what's changed? Well, the big challenge has always been to find isotopes that are relatively safe and that emit a steady stream of particles uh, in uh, and exist in quantities, of course, that are commercially useful so that you can actually mine them. Recent breakthroughs using particle accelerators have been positive enough that the US Army is now committing to serious research in collaboration with a Polish research institute. The Polish team is looking at isomers called rhenium-186m and americium-242m. Uh, one of the things I think that uh, scared me the most about this piece is that searching for the right isomers is apparently a really trial and error process. So I am glad that they're not using these really radioactive materials for this kind of test. Apparently it's hard to use mathematical models to predict how well these isomers will perform as batteries, so you essentially can only do it by putting them through their paces. So if we can harness that potential, if we can find isomers that exist in sufficient quantities to, to be, as I said, commercially useful, we may have chanced upon batteries that can last months, years or decades. For the time being, I think we would be more likely to see them used in military or space settings because it is still radioactive. So I imagine access will need to be controlled. We're not going to have green glowing Tesla power walls in the next decade, but we could be getting ever closer to realising that dream of Doc Brown's nuclear powered DeLorean. All right. Uh, I think we've got uh, just about enough time left for uh, a little one. Well, deep fakes. Uh, we're told about the threat of AI and image technology that can manipulate video and make it look like anybody said absolutely anything. And this is the point at which everything becomes uh, potential fake news and we start to lose that sense of objective truth. So it's always good to highlight the deep fakes that are doing good work on the rare occasions that they appear. A nonpartisan activist group in the US called Represent Us has partnered with a creative agency called Mischief at No Fixed Address to produce two deepfake videos. One is of Vladimir Putin and the other is of uh, Kim Jong-un, purporting to address the US population over threats to the presidential election. And these weren't AI generated? Well, ironically, this is another one of those processes where people beat machines. According to Technology Review, it would have taken an AI months to create the same kind of work. The production team filmed actors with uh, similar face shapes to the uh, international leaders, and they used CGI to step in the foreign leaders' faces 
and clean up the footage. And that process took them around 10 days. Uh, the clips are between kind of 30 seconds and a minute long. They're scheduled to be broadcast in spots on major US TV networks. They may even have been aired by the time this show comes out. But if you want to check them out, you can find them on the Represent Us YouTube channel. And I'll also post them to the Culture Pop Facebook page. So, so why do you think it's uh, important to show these uh, on, on mainstream channels? Well, you have a generation of people that has grown up with this kind of technology and automatically doubts everything they see. But then you have everybody else who hasn't and who believes what they see on film. But of course, film isn't film anymore. It's software. It's just ones and zeros. Uh, There was a CNN clip that I watched last week where a Trump rally goer, who was relatively young, was shown a fairly crude deepfake video where an anchor on the network was shouting at a sleeping pundit and the pundit's snores were audible and of course he was shouting at him to to wake up. And of course that pundit's image was substituted for Joe Biden, who the Trump campaign have categorized as being sleepy Joe Biden. Right. And and that rally goer has already seen it and, and believed it to be true? Well, yeah, he'd already seen it. Um, he acknowledged to the reporters, yes, um, you know, I know what this is all about. So then the CNN reporter showed him the original video and you could see the embarrassed look on the guy's face because he really wanted it to be true. He didn't want to be presented with the fact that it was false. And this kind of content is appearing around the world and across the political spectrum. It's not confined to to any particular sector of uh, campaigns or campaigning or countries. There are, you know, a number of tasks here. Obviously, educating people and showing them that it's uh, is going to be really important to to know where your information is coming from because. It's so easy to fake. That's just one. It's also bringing people who aren't as digitally savvy up to the same level as the people for whom this is natural and a funny joke, because these are people who can see the glitches in the matrix, which is basically everyone under the age of 20. But it's also to highlight that we need new ways to watermark and guarantee where our content has come from. Now, whether that comes from the blockchain or it comes from some other technology i don't know at this point but otherwise we lose those foundations we lose those underpinnings and we lose that idea of trust in anyone or anything so that is my uplifting message for the week um and i'd just like to add a quick farewell and safe journey to the stars of an old friend and listener shaz whose take on uh, tech and culture i was always happy to listen to I hope you catch up with the voyagers. This has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.